Justin Ford for From the Front Line. Tonight we are dealing with the biblical roots of the coronation ceremony and its significance. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. On Saturday, the 6th of May, 2023, Westminster Abbey in London will be the scene of a magnificent coronation ceremony, the coronation of King Charles III and Camilla. Dr. Hammond, do you have any comments on the events and the planning and so on? Yes, uh, it's the first time in uh, our lifetimes anything like this is going to be seen. The last coronation was, of course, of Queen Elizabeth II um, in 1953. And so this is going to be an incredible spectacle, and uh, I think the world's going to be quite transfixed. I remember being in uh, Lusaka, Zambia, back in... April 19, uh, 2011, when William and Catherine were married, and the whole of Zambia seemed to come to a standstill. Even the university where I was lecturing at, uh, they all gathered around the big TV sets, and uh, you could just see Zambia seemed to be all royalist. I, I was very surprised to find the enthusiasm for the royal family in in England. Uh, in in um, Zambia, it seemed to be every bit as excited as the people in England were. Uh, so. That was extraordinary. I also remember coming out the South African Army in 2000, uh, no, that was 1981, and I was uh, wandering around Johannesburg trying to get to different Christian places like Scripture Gift Mission. They were all closed. And I was jaywalking down JP Street wondering where's the cars, where's the traffic, and that night I got back to my host and they said, did you see the wedding? What wedding? Charles and Diana. Well, I must have been the only person in Pretoria not to know about it. But it seemed like the world stopped to watch Princess Diana's wedding. And, of course, we told something in the region of a billion people watched Princess Diana's wedding. And uh, more than a billion watched the funeral for Diana. The um, actual wedding of William and Kate was massive. And uh, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II had four billion people watching, which was double the tendency you'd get for uh, watching uh, World Cup soccer. And uh, more than... Uh, four times more than watch the opening of the Olympics. So the royal family is the biggest show on earth. And I think many people are impressed by the pageantry and the tradition and intrigued by a lot of the uniforms and just all the ornate ceremonies involved in this. So I think it's important to look at it. And of course, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this because Charles has been well known as somebody who's quite into faith and a bit of a friend of Muslims. And he has wanted us his uh, declaration of commitment to be not defender of the faith, but defender of faiths and traditions. And so he's he wants to incorporate uh, Hindus, uh, Muslims, uh, Jewish rabbis and others into the ceremony. And of course, quite rightly, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby, is refusing, saying this is against canon law. This is a Christian church and only Christian ministers and professing Christians can take part in these services. It is expressly against their church law for them to have people who are religious leaders of other religions and traditions and faiths to take part in a communion service and a expressly Christian service. It's not a religious service. It's a Christian worship service. And it's in that context. And Westminster Abbey might be considered the private um, abbey for the royal family, but it's still a Church of England um, building which is subject to the same rules as all Church of England churches. They must adhere to 39 articles and other stipulations of canon laws. So the royal family does not actually have the right to infringe on 
the Church's liberties. That's, in fact, the first principle of Magna Carta, that all the rights and liberties of the Church of England shall not be infringed. So the monarch expressly has to swear to uphold Magna Carta, the Great Charter, the first statute on written restriction on powers of government, uh, before they are allowed to be crowned. It's it's a obligation. Every member of the royal family has to be committed to upholding Magna Carta. That is this sworn coronation oath. So what we're seeing is a bit of a clash here. We've got somebody trying to modernize and um, diversify and make more interfaith a Christian service. And, of course, the um, officers of the church, if they are true to the duty, have to refuse and say, you do not have that right, and this is not actually your jurisdiction. So, you know, he can invite you once to his balcony or to his dining room table, but he cannot change a Christian worship service into something that's um, uh, other than Christian, expressly Christian. Hmm. So I, I do see serious... Uh, interesting conflict coming there. Mm. Um, Dr. Hammond, can you tell us a bit about the background to Britain's royal traditions and protocol? And does the Anglican Book of Prayer outline the service and so on? Yes, well, of course, it's meant to be thoroughly biblical. So if you just take passages in the Bible that deal with coronations, and uh, you can start with 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifice of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the people of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is under Samuel the prophet. He's anointing the first king of Israel. And so that's in 1 Samuel eleven fifteen, And then uh, we go to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3. Then all the elders of Israel came to the king, at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. Now, again, it just shows this is a covenant. All the elders have to be there, and as in the coronation Britain, all the barons and lords and uh, the various princes, they must all gather. Everyone of every level of leadership must come to agree to this coronation, and it's part of a covenant. There's a compact. There's a Agreement. There's things a king promises to do, and there's things the people promise to do. As he, as the people owe the king allegiance and loyalty, the king owes the king of kings allegiance, and that's why if the king is not in submission to the king of kings. The uh, people are absolved of all uh, allegiance to that king, and that's one of the key principles of indefensive liberty against tyrants uh, the, and lex rex. It's not that the king is lord, it's that the law is king. The king is under the law. And that's why part of the coronation ceremony is the king or queen, the monarch, kneeling down uh, before the high altar of the Lord, uh, pledging to rule in accordance with the scriptures, the gospel of Christ, the laws of God, and uh, with Christian justice and mercy. Uh, these are all part of the requirement. Again, you go to 1 Kings uh, chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 20. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was, and uh, there again you can see that the whole nation is involved in this process again. In 2 Kings chapter 11 and verse 12, we read, And they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. That's the scriptures. They made him king and anointed him. They clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. I mean, there's a lot of these traditions that you can see are 
written into the British um, protocols. And uh, we're talking about a tradition of a good thousand years, and then going back to King Alfred the Great and others have followed these traditions. You go to 2 Chronicles, chapter 23 and verse 11, and they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, made him king. Then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. And so even the British national anthem, Long live the king, and uh, uh, the fact that the the high priest and the priests are there anointing him, to, because he's actually being anointed just as you would if you were being a priest, because just as the priest is to be a servant of God, a minister of God for grace, a minister of grace. So the king is to be a minister of justice. And so the same word is used in Romans 13, uh, deacon, uh, that you'd use for deacon in the church, that the government is to be the deacon of God, the servant of God, um, an agent of wrath to bring punishment of the wrongdoer. So just as the king bears the sword of justice, so the church has the keys of the kingdom and has a ministry of grace. So there's a lot of biblical tradition that you see wrapped up in this. So the coronation includes um, all the different leaders of the various uh, tribes, provinces, uh, rulers in the land are to gather together to be part of the coronation service because the king must make um, a pledge to uphold the laws and to protect these citizens. As we owe our leader allegiance, he owes us protection. And so the king's first duty is to protect the subjects, of course, to serve God in doing so. But uh, you will see the coronation in Britain includes the throne of King Edward. So this dates back to the 13th century. Now, this very old traditional oak um, throne, it's a, it's a wooden throne made of oak, uh, unfortunately with a lot of graffiti on it. People have carved in their initials, especially from the 19th century, uh, when it was in public display. Unfortunately, some of that's a bit desecrated, but nevertheless, it used to be covered in gilt. Uh, that's faded away over the years. They're not going to redo that. They're still keeping the old uh, uh, throne, and it's got four lines, a line at each base of the, the um, molded lines in the uh, chair legs of the throne. But there's a special layer immediately under the seat to take a stone, and it's not just any stone. It's a stone of scone or the stone of destiny. It's Jacob's pillar the stone which the people of Scotland are convinced was the actual stone that Jacob, the patriarch, used as his headstone in uh, the wilderness in, in uh, Palestine, what today is the state of Israel. And so it's got two rings on this ancient stone, which is plainly identified by a geologist as coming from the Middle East, from that very region. And it, the two metal uh, rings in it are doubtless for a pole to be put through, for to be carried by priests. And uh, every king of England, going back to Edward, has been crowned on top of the Stone of Scone. Now, recently, the Stone of Scone was negotiated to go back to Scotland to be protected in the Scottish uh, castle in Edinburgh. Um, it's a treasury of Scotland. But the agreement is that for any coronation of uh, any uh, king or queen of, of England, the Stone of Scone would move back to London to be placed under this throne and there's a lot of symbolism and significance in that because the people believe, in fact, going back to Queen Victoria uh, and before her, uh, the monarchs of England believe that they are the descendants of and they're linked to the children of Israel, the ten lost tribes, so-called lost tribes, the, the northern kingdom that were dispersed by the 
captivity of the Assyrians that they are um, part of the true people of God and it's their job in fact to continue the reign of Christ on earth. Queen Victoria understood that she held the throne in trust and that her greatest joy would be to hand back the crown the throne to the king of kings whose throne it is in fact that she realized she was merely his servant and this has been a view of most of the kings and queens of Europe over the recent centuries that uh, they are answerable to the king of kings and while uh, their citizens and subjects owe them allegiance they owe allegiance to the greater king the king of kings and so there's a lot of the ceremony that shows it. So you've got the Stone of Destiny or Jacob's Pillow. That's part of it. You get the anointing with oil. I th believe the British royal family is the only royal family in the world that has a coronation service that includes anointing with oil, which is very biblical. You can see from King David, King Saul, all the way through, they've always done anointing with oil, recognizing that the king is to be a servant of God. And the services always conclude with the phrase that you get straight back from the Bible, God save the king. And that's, in fact, even into uh, Britain's uh, national anthem. So, um, in fact, not that they've had a king crowned for a very long time. The last was King George VI, uh, who was only made king because his brother, his elder brother, Edward VIII, was forced to abdicate. And that brings up something else interesting, that 1936, um, at a key time in British history, King Edward VI, who was, uh, sorry, King Edward VIII, who was already... Uh, England's king, but he hadn't gone to a coronation service yet. They were still planning it. He was forced to abdicate because he was engaged to and planned to marry an American divorcee. I don't know which was worse, being an American or a divorcee, but that was considered against uh, the requirements for a king of England because the English Bill of Rights of 1689, which was accepted in the glorious revolution of 1688, uh, King William and Mary, and all future monarchs had to agree to accede to this, um, that provided that no king of England could be ma married to or engaged to a Roman Catholic or anyone who wasn't a Protestant. That as the head of the Church of England is the monarch, the monarch is the supreme governor, protector of the Church of England. And therefore, you cannot have a king or a queen or anyone who the king or queen is engaged to who will be anything other than a Protestant. If they're Roman Catholic, they're excluded. And uh, if they're not a Christian, they cannot be accepted. And they also provide that you could not have a divorced king or a, a king marrying a divorcee, which you would think on the face of it would exclude Charles from the succession because he's divorced and he's married a divorcee, as in Camilla, which was enough to make Edward VIII uh, excluded. He had to spend the rest of his life in exile. He abdicated the throne. And in fact, many people believe history would have been very different because he was very friendly to Germany, a great admirer of Germany. And it's believed that Edward VIII would never have approved of declaring war in Germany in 1939. Uh, therefore, the fact that he uh, abdicated could have changed British and world history because Edward VIII uh, was um, excluded, forced to abdicate because of his views. Edward VIII, by the way, was a great friend of the working people, especially the Welsh, min Welsh miners and so on. And he admired how Germany had managed to abolish uh, unemployment and uh, remove the national debt and go in such phenomenal growth, e like an economic miracle. He was a great admirer of that and wished that 
England would be free to do the same. Um, he was coming to understand that the uh, enslavement to the bankers where the government borrows money from the Bank of England, which is not actually the Bank of England, it's owned by private individuals, especially the Rothschild family, and that the people of, of England were debt slaves paying off loans to private banks for money which the state could have created itself and uh, without having any um, interest required on it. So anyway, that, that's just an interesting thing that here we've got a uh, we've got a so-called prince of England running around who's married to a divorcee who's not just an American but an actress, a lot worse than Wallace Simpson, um, and uh, uh, causing havoc as well. So you've got enough scandal and uh, uh, drama going around here for any soap opera. But um, in living memory of some people still alive today, a king of England was forced to abdicate for much less reasons than we're seeing right now. And uh, it is a bit disturbing that you've got a man who's meant to be the defender of the faith wanting to incorporate Muslim imams and Jewish rabbis, Hindus and so on, into a Church of England worship service and communion service, which is against canon law. So, yes, there are protocols and there's biblical roots to all of this. And there's a reason why Britain's had this tradition for over a thousand years. It's a bit disturbing if any one individual thinks he can change that, because I think British tradition should always trump individual personality. Now, the previous late Queen Elizabeth II was very respectful of tradition. She did not attempt to go against it, and she always espoused consistently Christian faith in her speeches, especially her Christmas and Easter speeches, so much so that the Bible study of Great Britain brought out a book which I have, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves, just composed of quotes that the Queen gave, um, which showed consistently her understanding and her communication of the gospel of Christ very clearly in her speeches through the years which I don't think we're going to see from King Charles because he is, like his namesakes, the previous King Charles's were, to be honest, um, disasters and enemies of the church. And uh, Charles I caused a massive civil war in England and pitted Parliament against the king and led to, in fact, there's a reason why there's a monument to Oliver Cromwell outside the parliaments of England because he championed the cause of parliament and the people against the king who was ruling like a tyrant and even imp imported and brought up foreign mercenary armies from the Pope and Ireland to come and invade England um, to keep him on the throne, which of course was treason and a violation of the coronation oath, violation of Magna Carta and so much more. So uh, why anybody would want to name an heir to the throne Charles, the first two Charleses were terrible. Um, so that's not particularly promising to start with, but if King Charles chooses duty and tradition and the scriptures over his personal inclinations and the advice of his friends like Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, that would be good. But if he decides to be a politically correct, woke king, the results would be pretty disastrous. As you've noticed already, go woke, go broke. And that's true for Bud Weisner uh, all the way through to Nike and others who don't seem to have learned the lesson in Disney, go woke, go broke. And uh, I don't think Britain wants a woke king. People have had just about all they can handle of this uh, trance agenda and uh, let alone global warming, fraud and all the other things that are coming in order to 
um, take more freedoms away from people and put more power in the hands of globalists. Mm, Dr. Hammond, listening to you, um, would you agree that Charles III is sort of epitomizing or reflecting the zeitgeist of postmodernity in which people twist rules and laws to 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 suit themselves rather than adhering to fundamental Yes, laws. he's a very modern king and he certainly seems to suit uh, what a lot of people on the ground want. He seems quite popular at this moment too, but of course the average Englishman is not very concerned for biblical faithfulness and historical traditions at this stage. So he's he's fitting the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, very well, but that's actually potentially disastrous. And um, you also mentioned that there's a possible link between this royal family and the lost tribes. Yes, in fact, that was the conviction of Queen Victoria, for example. There's a massive coffee table book beautifully illustrated called Coronation. I don't own it, but I've seen it uh, visiting other people's homes in England. And it goes through the history of coronations and going back over a thousand years. And Queen Victoria commissioned a genealogy, and it's actually in the back of the uh, book Coronation directly tracing Queen Victoria's family all the way back to King David in Israel. And uh, it is believed by many and has been believed for many, many years that uh, the people of the Anglo-Saxons, the people of Northwestern Europe, are the 12 lost tribes of Israel, like the people of Dan, Danmark, Danube. You can just see so many um, uh, fulfillments of the prophecies in the Old Testament too that they will be called great and they will be a company of nations and they will bless the nations and they'll bless all the families and nations of the earth. Well, there's no other people that have blessed all the families and nations of the earth other than the Anglo-Saxon Protestants who have been the fountainhead of the Reformation, who have sent missionaries to every corner of the world and who fought to end the slave trade, who've uplifted people's lives increased life expectancy, blessed the world with so many great inventions in medicine, agriculture, ended famines, done so many great things. So they'll be called greats. They will possess the gates of the enemies. In fact, you can see how the Anglo-Saxons have possessed the gates, all kinds of gates, from financial gates, military gates, uh, even um, sea lane gates from Gibraltar, Suez, uh, Aden, uh, Cape Good Hope, all the way. Uh, through to the Falkland Islands, all the different key, key gates, and a, a, a family of nations. Where else can you see such a fulfillment? Um, Abraham was told that his descent would be as, the, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars of the sky. It's a huge company of nations, and um, you can see even from the, the flag of England, which is the St. George's Cross, the red flag on white, which was King Richard the Lionheart's flag, the a crusader flag, and then the St. Andrew's Cross of Scotland, uh, the white X on blue, and then the uh, St. Patrick Cross from Ireland added, and that made the Union Jack, which is present flag. It's like every Nordic Scandinavian country, England has crosses in its flag. In fact, it has three crosses. And uh, you can also think of both Australia and New Zealand, they've got also those crosses. In fact, Australian flag got a fourth cross and the Southern Cross being added, and New Zealand has too, actually, in addition to the Union Jack. So you've got these great Christian testimonies, even their flags, and there's so much in the fulfillments of prophecy, which you can see, um, and there's a lot of historical links too. The very fact that we called Caucasians, 
from the Caucasus Mountains, which is where the northern tribes were sent in exile. So they went to the Caucasian Mountains and you could just follow the path of them as they migrated north and west across um, Europe uh, to the British Isles. And there's a lot of links as well that show that the daughters, the last princesses of uh, the king of Israel, the last king of Israel was Zedekiah as Jerusalem fell in 586 AD and uh, his two daughters were taken with the prophet Jeremiah to Egypt. And there are um, records how they ended up in Ireland and Scotland, respectively, and married kings there. And uh, that the last king of, of David's line, uh, although he was killed and his sons were killed in front of his eyes, it looked like it was the end of David's line. But as the Bible says, that uh, they will not lack a descent of David to sit on the throne. And so, plainly... Um, and we know, of course, Jesus is the son of David, and he is the one who is the ultimate king. But in the meantime, there's still a fulfillment all the way through, even between the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus. There's still been descendants of, of King David who've been sitting on the thrones of Scotland, Ireland, and then ultimately England and the British Isles as well. So this comes out in the book Coronation, and there's quite a lot of great, um, intriguing archaeological investigations that... It explains it's not just the traditions of Israel that end up in the coronation service in England. Uh, and you can even see in the crest of the royal family and of the British Isles includes the harp of David and the lions of Judah and other important symbols. So, yes, there are many who do believe and the ones who set up the coronation protocols. And you can even see it in the prayer book, which is accepted by the English Parliament as the liturgy of the land that, in fact, uh, the people are the people of God and even the laws of King Alfred, King Alfred's laws, the dooms of King Alfred or the, the common law of England, it begins with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. You are to have no other gods before me. And the whole Ten Commandments is listed. And it's many of the prayers in the prayer book also assume that the people of the British Isles are the people of God. They are the um, children of Abraham and that the uh, royal family in England are uh, children of David. Yeah, so if that is so, then Charles uh, turning into faith um, bodes um, ill for Britain, uh, especially if you look at what has happened to the ancient Israelite kings. That <laughs> exactly. Well, yes, God never gave anyone a blank check. So even nobody is saved by race. You're saved by grace alone. And God abandoned Jerusalem twice to be destroyed um, due to the guilt of idolatry, interfaith, ingratitude, immorality, and other evils. So that plainly, um, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much more is given, much more is required. And the British people have been blessed much over the centuries. And this means they've got a greater responsibility and God will judge them harsher. So they have a great heritage. And that's, I think, demonstrated in a phenomenal pageantry, as we saw recently with the uh, funeral of Queen Elizabeth. And we will see coming up on the 6th of May in the pageantry and marching and traditions of the coronation of the new King of England. But this means they have far greater answerability to God and more responsibility, which is why it must be a Christian worship service, expressly Christian the Westminster Abbey, in accordance with the laws of the church. And the coronation ceremony actually emphasised the duties and the responsibilities and the solemnity and accountability. 
and the fact that this is done in the sight of God and the king is pledged to rule in accordance with the gospels of Christ and the laws of God as contained in the Holy Scriptures. And part of the ceremony is kissing the Bible and uh, pledging to rule in accordance with it. Uh, this, I do hope that the import of all this would impress itself on King Charles's heart and mind and that his people truly will pray for him and that the prayer and national anthem of God Save the Queen, God Save the King be fulfilled. I mean, may God truly save King Charles. Body, mind and spirit may he be transformed, may he be regenerated and renewed and become a new person in Christ mm. because that's what the people of England and the Commonwealth need. They need someone who will take their spiritual responsibilities before God seriously in the fear of God because this is an awesome responsibility. He's got a phenomenal opportunity, but I know there are people who are trying to manipulate him to promote the New World Order, World Economic Forum, Globalist Agenda, and including trying to turn Westminster Abbey into a place of interfaith, pagan idolatry. But remember, the kings of Israel were judged when they did that. And there's condemnation throughout Kings and Chronicles of those kings who worshipped false gods or who uh, committed idolatry. And there's commendation for those who destroyed the idols and call the people back to the law of God. So, Dr. Hammond, how are we as Christians to understand and respond to these events? Well, I think uh, the first key thing is to understand is as people are talking about the coronation, of course, it's a major event in our history, not just to the people of England, the Commonwealth, but for the whole world. So we should use these opportunities to direct people's thoughts to a far greater king, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is coming again to judge the living and dead. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a far greater king and there's a far greater kingdom. There's a far greater coronation ceremony coming than what our news media are focused on at this moment. Dr. Hammond, what can you tell us about the kingdom of God and what does the Bible tell us about the kingdom of God? Actually, a lot. So the word church, it may surprise you to know, only occurs three times in the gospel. Three times in the Gospels you read the word church. And yet the terms kingdom and kingdom of God occur over 120 times in the Gospels. And the overwhelming emphasis of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ was a kingdom message. You read in Mark 1, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So our Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom. Yet today it's generally the gospel of salvation which is preached in our churches and I think that should disturb us because the gospel of salvation is part of the gospel of kingdom, but it's only a small part. The gospel of kingdom is much bigger. The gospel of salvation is about me and how I can get saved. But the gospel of kingdom is about the king, Jesus Christ, and his plan for the whole world and universe and where we fit into it. So the gospel of salvation is a part of the gospel of kingdom, but it's not the whole gospel of the kingdom. And so... The gospel of salvation as preached in all too many churches today and through much of the mainstream Christian media is mostly about me and how I can get blessed and healed and prospered, enriched and improved and saved from all the negative consequences of my bad choices and how I can ultimately end up in heaven. So the way the gospel is preached by all too many today is something of a therapeutic self-help message with emphasis on me, with God playing a supporting role in how I can fulfill my dreams and attain my desires. Now that's not the gospel of the kingdom. That's the gospel of salvation. And I'm afraid what we're getting in many of our church today is far removed from the gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus in the Bible. So um, King Charles, he would have to make sure that he's fulfilling his obligations rather than 
fulfilling obligations that he would like to see or his Indeed. friends. He must get direction and guidance from the Bible, not from Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. And his mother, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II, certainly understood the gospel of the kingdom, and she understood that she was a servant of God. And when she met with Billy Graham, Billy Graham testified that she was definitely born again. She really understood the gospel, and she had a real personal faith in Christ. And I've heard that from other people who knew the Queen personally, and that's impressive. But evidently, her son does not get it, at least not yet. Now, we pray he will. He's done some gracious things, and he's, some of his speeches have been quite inspiring. Um, but nevertheless, this is the most important thing he must understand. He is a servant of the King of Kings. And the United Kingdom is just one of the parts of God's great kingdom. And uh, he's holding in trust for the King of Kings. And one day the Lord will return, perhaps in his lifetime, and he will have the privilege to hand over the kingdom to the one in, for whom it's held in trust. But he needs to get this understanding. Of course, all presidents need to understand this too. They are meant to be servants of God. And uh, unfortunately, I think most people in government don't see themselves servants of the people or servants of God. They see themselves as the boss, the chief, uh, dictator, whatever. And um, so the gospel of the kingdom of God is all about the king of kings and the lord of lords, his crown, his coming, his cross, his great commission his plan, his purpose for nations, and what we can do to be faithful subjects, servants, and soldiers of the eternal kingdom. And our Lord Jesus Christ personified the kingdom that he proclaimed. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords, as so wonderfully described in Handel's Messiah. He is the living embodiment of all that he spoke about. The person and the proclamations of the king are inseparable. His life and his lips are always in unison. His counsels must determine our conduct. His person and his proclamations were as seamless as the robe he wore. The words he declared were confirmed by his deeds. He brought sight to the blind, healing and hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. He cleansed the leopard. He made the cripple to walk, even raised the dead to life. And Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus Christ was actually born king. I mean, he might be born a prince or princess these days. Nobody's born a king. Uh, you might be born an heir to the throne, but Jesus was born king, acclaimed king by God the Father. He affirmed his kingship before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate because he said the kingdom of God is not coming with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And uh, we should read, in the midst of you, our Lord Jesus Christ was in the midst of the Pharisees, and he, the king, is the epitome of his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is in the midst of you is what Jesus was saying when he was around on earth. Because wherever the king is and wherever there are people who submit to the king, there is the kingdom of God. Um, if Charles is not a born-again Christian, does that mean the kingdom of God does not include Britain or does not include him? Well, the kingdom of God does include those people in Britain who are submitted to him. And the kingdom of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom, is committed legally, constitutionally, to be uh, in submission to the King of Kings. It's in the prayer book, which has been adopted by Parliament. It's in the National Liturgy. It's in their laws. It's in the dooms of King Alfred. It's in Magna Carta. It's in the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Uh, England is officially a Christian kingdom, even though right now we've heard that the majority of people in England do not identify themselves as Christians. And right now, there are. England has a Hindu prime minister 
a Muslim mayor of London and many cities have Muslim mayors. And a lot about England is now interfaith or even pagan or Islamic and uh, in many other ways um, false religions. And for this reason, you could question if Great Britain is indeed still a Christian kingdom. But Great Britain is constitutionally, legally, officially a Christian kingdom. And I think you'll see in the ceremonies coming now, it is. There's no doubt Queen Elizabeth recognized this, and her service was a thoroughly prayer book, scripturally orientated, biblical Christian service. Uh, in fact, I don't think most people in the world have ever been exposed to a traditional Christian service as they were if they watched the whole of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Scripture, hymns, uh, many people would not have come across it ever before, probably. But uh, that was a testimony to the old England, which was expressly Christian. Charles is like a picture of the new England, which is multi-faith, interfaith, globalist, uh, secular, and skeptical, and far from Christian. And uh, one can only hope that this coronation service will be an evangelistic experience, that the scriptures, which are the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, will, will impact the organizers, the king himself, and the spectators and other congregants attending. Yeah, in Mark 4, verse 11, it says that the, it describes the kingdom of God as a mystery. So we hope it is. Not, yeah, so we hope it is a mystery. mystery. And the spiritual things of God cannot be understood by secular minds. Therefore, we need to be regenerated. We need to understand spiritual matters spiritually. So Jesus said, for you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And he's talking to his disciples. And the Lord's parables describe the beginnings of his kingdom whose value justifies any sacrifice, the pearl of great price. In five parables, the growth and the principles of his kingdom are outlined. In seven of the parables of Christ, he forecasts the consummation of his kingdom. And other parables emphasize personal experience of the subjects of the kingdom. And Jesus explained that the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground, and the seed will grow, and he himself doesn't know how. It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown, is smaller than all the seeds on earth, but it grows up and becomes great in all the herbs and shoots out large branches. So the kingdom of God is like the word of God being planted in people's hearts and lives. And some will be hard ground, some will be stony ground, some will be rocky or thorny ground, but some will fall in good soil and will grow and produce 30, 60, 100 fold. And so the kingdom of God is wrapped up in the word of God and how we respond to the word of God. What is required to live under the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God requires repentance, discipleship, and evangelism. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So if you follow Christ, that requires repentance and discipleship. And he left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. And part of it will be being an evangelist, because he'll make us fishers of men. Just like a fish eagle can't help catching fish. So if we are Christians, we should be seeking to be witnesses and bring other people to Christ. What would be the fruit of uh, the kingdom of God? The fruit of the kingdom of God should be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, the Lord made it clear that uh, the uh, kingdom of God is not about just eating and drinking. It's, it's about righteousness and peace and joy. And so uh, plainly throughout the scriptures we see our need to be bearing good fruit, to work hard and to exercise our faith in daily life, we can see that uh, the kingdom of God 
should bring forth good fruit. Like if you look around, you can see um, in the cathedrals, evidence of the of the kingdom of God, some of the greatest architecture, greatest um, music, like in Hampton, greatest mu um, art. And uh, you can just see so much as biblical uh, emphasis. And so excellence in work, in industry, in ethics, in art and architecture should be some of the fruits of, of the kingdom of God. And you can see some of the most magnificent buildings in history being built in cities and countries that are expressly Christian. And I think the cathedrals are the best example of it. Mm. That just points to heaven and it, it shows us this is excellence. This is above. You know, you just look at the prefab ugly monstrosities often produced today, uh, built of chrome and concrete, and you compare that with the cathedrals and the stained glass windows. The kingdom of God brings forth excellence. And that, that just recalls to mind that uh, King Charles III does have a few good points. He's known as a champion of traditional architecture and um, mm. preserving the environment. But yes. uh, in, just to, in closing, how would, how would you, what should we look for? What, what would be signs of uh, a regenerate King Charles III or um, someone who's replicating the bad side of the ancient Israeli Well, just kings. take, for example, Handel's Messiah, which is one of the greatest musical um, compositions ever. And uh, at the first premiere of Handel's Messiah, during the Hallelujah Chorus, King George II stood up. And of course, when the king stands up, everyone else had to stand up. And he initiated a tradition that endures to this day. Even here in Cape Town, the ends of the earth, southernmost tip of Africa, Every time Handel's Messiah is performed, we all stand to our feet at attention during the Hallelujah Chorus. King George II declared, it is impossible to remain seated for the anthem of the King of Kings. Now, when Queen Victoria was very old, she attended a performance of Handel's Messiah, and the organisers informed her, in view of a great age, please remain seated during the Hallelujah Chorus. Don't feel that you need to stand. We all understand um, your infirmities. Well, during the Hallelujah Chorus, Queen Victoria, Empress of the greatest empire the world had ever seen, stood and bowed with tears and eyes, her lips trembling, her body shaking. And she said uh, that she knows that although her empire is greater than anything the world has ever seen to that date, it's still nothing in the scales compared to that of the King of Kings. When an African prince visited Queen Victoria, she was asked, what is the secret of Britain's greatness? Now, I mean, the greatest economic, political and military power at that time. She handed him a Bible and said, the Bible is the source of Britain's greatness. And that also is a, explanation of why Britain is no longer great. They've turned away from the Bible. If they want to be great, they need to go back to the Bible. Well, Queen Victoria asked the Dean of Westminster Abbey, did he think that Jesus could come in her lifetime? And she said, because nothing would give me more joy than to pass on the crown of Great Britain and India to him with my own hands. And she recognized that her duty was to be faithful to the King of Kings and the crown and the scepter belonged to our Lord Jesus. And so uh, I think it's epitomized in the coronation oath. So when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned on 2nd of June 1953, she was required by the Archbishop, and I trust the same words will be used for King Charles. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God with true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the United Kingdom, a Protestant reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England. To this the Queen responded, All this I promise to do. The Archbishop asked, Will you to your power cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? And the Queen responded, I will. 
and the sword of state was carried before her. As she rose from her chair, went to the high altar, made a solemn oath in the side of the people, laid her right hand on the Holy Gospel and the Great Bible, and declared, The things that I have heretofore promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. The Queen then kissed the Bible and signed the oath. And this, I believe, is a high point of any coronation service, and may God grant that King Charles will do it and fully understand and commit himself to it in his heart. Dr. Hammond, where can one learn more about the kingdom of God and the coronation in that context? Well, I've written a Bible study on this called The Kingdom of God, which you can see on our www.livingstonfellowship.co.za website, www.livingstonfellowship.co.za. And uh, you'll see there's The Kingdom of God presentation there and uh, an audio of the full message as well, a full Bible study you can download. I would hope many people would go through it in their Bible study, uh, share it with their friends, um, proclaim it from the pulpit, share it in the youth groups. We need to understand the kingdom of God. Well, people are focused on a real kingdom in England at this time. Let's remember a greater kingdom and one that will last forever. Mm. Dr. Hammond, thank you very much for taking the upcoming coronation out of a tabloid perspective and putting it into the real serious context of um, the kingdom of God. Um, in closing, I'd like to read from Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night.